continuing in Mark 14, beginning at verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, unfurnished or furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went, and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Thank you, Lord, for the reading of your word. May you add your blessing to it by your spirit opening our hearts and minds to hear your word preached this morning to your glory. Amen. I think that's a haunting question, a horrible moment that the disciples remembered their whole life when Jesus breaks up what seems to be a happy, happy moment. It's a celebration of God's grace and goodness and salvation, the Passover. We obeyed God. We put the blood on the door where they have earlier that day slaughtered the lamb and cooked it up. And boy, the room smelled good, delicious food. And there's wine and everybody's in good spirits. And Jesus says right in the middle, one of you will betray me. And and they all uh, have an appropriate response. It's actually, many times in the Gospels, it's recorded that their response was goofy and, and kind of off, you know, they missed it. This time is actually a very good response. They all have enough self-doubt, humbly to say, and actually the, the, the sense of the Greek is, it, it, it is not I, is it? It's like, I, I don't think so, but there's there's doubt there. I'm not positive. It's not, and we always want to say, we want to, we want to break the English and say, it's not me. Okay, but proper English is, it's not I. I who betray, will betray you, is it, Lord? So that's the center of this great text. But it's put in a beautiful, beautiful context as God always lovingly does. Really, the context is the greatness of God. We, we sang beautiful songs about the greatness of God. God of wonders beyond our galaxy. You are amazing. You're powerful. You're full of grace. 
And that's where we find God in this passage as being the sovereign God over little things like an arrangement of which room we're going to use and then the sovereign God over the huge issue of solving the problem of all time. The problem of all time is ethical, it's moral, it's sin. That's the problem of all time and space is, is sin and it is solved in Jesus Christ in the fact that he is the sacrifice, the Passover lamb who will willingly be betrayed and go to the cross in a few hours from now as we come into our text today. So let's read it and, and work through this, the first part here. On the first day of unleavened bread, that's another name for the Passover. Uh, there's you know, a lot of background here. You probably uh, hopefully understand it a little bit, uh, but they weren't allowed to have any yeast, uh, raised, fluffy, soft breads in the house. Uh, they would only have unleavened bread to remind them of the speed with which they had to leave Egypt. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, so they ate unleavened bread as they came out of Egypt. And that's called the time of unleavened bread. You know, they've done a search of the house. They go through a whole thing. They clean their house. Even in modern day, the observant Jews will clean their entire house. They even clean the crevices and cracks in the kitchen thoroughly to get all traces of leaven, of yeast out of their house. And this is the first day of un unleavened bread when they sacrifice the Passover lamb. I pointed out last week, there's this marvelous, sovereign irony going on here uh, because the perpetrators... The chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the, the power folks who were, who were pushing to kill Jesus, they, they didn't notice in verse uh, 2 of our chapter. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. You know, we, we definitely want to kill him. We've decided that actually years ago at this point. But let's control this thing, guys. We surely don't want to do it when Jerusalem... Jerusalem is wall-to-wall -wall people. They say it like triples, quadruples in population during the Passover because, you know, all the Jews were supposed to go to Jerusalem. And they didn't want a big riot of the people. So they're going to control this thing and not, not sacrifice Jesus during the Passover, but in beautiful, sovereign... Uh, just glory, God says, no, the, the, the Lamb of God will be sacrificed in this feast. The feast is for Him. From the very beginning, it was to be a display of who He is. So, of course, the Sovereign Lord will work this out. And there they are. Uh, they've sacrificed the Passover Lamb in verse 12. And his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, 
go into the city, that, that's Jerusalem. Remember again, Jerusalem's teeming with life, hustle, bustle, everybody's there. All the hotels have jacked up their prices, <laughs> just like we do in Monterey for, uh, for you know, like in, in the off season, you can get a hotel room for 49 bucks here, believe it or not. But in the on season, that same room will be $349 uh, or something like that. But that's Jerusalem. It's busy, uh, and they, they, you guys go in there, and you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. He will meet you. He's going to come out to meet you. Actually, uh, there's been a lot of discussion of this detail, but the truth is, if you look at research, I did some study on this, questioning what's this about. This is very common. Uh, the male servants carried water around town. I thought of a simple thing. I took a shower this morning. You know, you just bend over and you turn this thing on the wall and water comes gushing out at you. High pressure, glorious gallons and gallons of water, right? They didn't have running water there. No running water. So every drop of water had to be carried uh, in a pot uh, to the house for all, you know, bathing, cooking, cleaning, whatever you need, you need the water. So there's water moving all over the city. It's one of those scenes where there's going to be a man carrying water. Yeah, well, duh. <laughs> there are 11,000 men carrying water. It's like, okay, so which one's our guy? <laughs> but one of them came to them and met them. Uh, as Jesus says, he says, he will meet you. You follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master. See, this is a male servant. Not uncommon. I mean, they say like 40, 50 percent of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. Uh, they were owned. Uh, and so normal situation. Uh, say to the master of the house. He's the guy who owns the place. The teacher says, the teacher says, which teacher? <laughs> you know, who are you talking about here? Uh, the teacher says, where is, quote, my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So what is this about? I think in a sense, I, I'm, I'm taking this to me. I feel kind of strongly about this. This text is leading us to believe that Jesus didn't go ahead into the city and prearrange this. You know, what do you think? He snuck in there, found the guy, hustle bustle of the city, and laid out this thing at quite a certain time. I want you to meet my disciples and you come. No, this is presented as a, a miracle of the sovereignty of God. Jesus knows what's going to happen perfectly. He controls. He's the sovereign God. Jesus is actually the Lord of heaven and earth. <laughs> That's quite a title. So we have this term. Oh, there we go. Oh, that's interesting. Never mind that. Uh, sovereignty. Decided to put that up on the screen. 
God's sovereignty yesterday, today, and forever. And what we mean by that, it, it has the feeling of, of, of a king. A king is the sovereign. And for God's sovereignty, it means he's the king of all that exists. In, in Hebrew, you can, if you like Hebrew, listening to it once in a while, many of the prayers that observant Jews use, they have a phrase, Melech Ha'olam. Melech Ha'olam. And you know what that phrase is? Melech is king. Ha is the word the. Olam is this glorious word. It means universe. And it means uh, eternity. It's a, it's a, you know, kind of the biggest dimension you can imagine. Uh, it's massive. And God is Melech Ha'olam. And Jesus is God. He is the king of the universe. He is the king of all. He's the sovereign. And here he's displaying that he is in control of even what seems like minor little details in their life. I, I think in a sense, Jesus is showing a sense of adventure here and maybe even a little bit of fun. You know, it's the joy of discovery. We're going to walk up to some stranger and say, the teacher needs his room. <laughs> and the guy's not going to say, get out of here, you're crazy. No, he's going to say, oh, sure. There's no rent being paid. This guy on Airbnb could have gotten a lot of, for this room that night, like $1,200 on this room. It's a good-sized room. It had to have seating. You know, there's 12 disciples in Jesus. That's 13. But they all had to sit on one side of the table. So, so, so it had to be seating for 26. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't get it right. Uh, no, kidding aside. But there's just this sense of, of oh, Lord, you're displaying uh, your act, actual nature and your power. And it, it's exciting to see who you are. You're the God of wonders. You know, and uh, in the small and the big, he is the sovereign Lord. Um, this guy comes out to meet him. And I put on here uh, one of the, the Proverbs. This proverb is in uh, chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. That's what we mean by sovereignty. Things don't happen by accident. With God, there is no contingency. He's not going, uh-oh, what will happen next? He has it all perfectly planned out. And I know this is really hard for us to grasp because it's so different than who we are. I have actually nothing in terms of knowledge of the immediate future. We just don't know. Uh, you know, there was a part of that song that said, when I stumble in the darkness, da, 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 da. I was standing right there, right when I sang that. And I remember Friday night, it was a little bit late, we had a black tarp that was on this stage, and it was all folded up in a heap, and it was laying right here. And I had carefully turned off all the lights in the building, and I was headed out for the night. Boom! <laughs> and I stumbled in the darkness and laid on the floor. No harm done. I was fine. Actually, the tarp. It was a soft landing, so um, 
I stumbled in the darkness. I didn't know that that was there. I forgot. I, I, I knew it was there, but I totally forgot, right? I'm not sovereign. <laughs> I'm not the God who uh, understands, controls, who works all things after the counsel of my own will. So, so Jesus is showing his, this. He says, where is my guest room? My guest room? I mean, honestly, put yourself in, in the masters of the house shoes. Some two guys come up to your house and say, where's my dining room? <laughs> I beg your pardon? Yeah, my dining room. Uh, so, it's, you know, it's here. <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't, we don't have your dining room here. But he yields. He says, yes, this is the place. So Jesus is showing his power and control over all of these things. Reading back into the text, um, we are in verse 15. Uh, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Okay, now let's move to the heart of this text, the actual uh, beginning of the Passover. Next week, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper and beyond that. But listen to how this works out, right? And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Just pause there for a minute. If, if you read, and if we have time, go back and read the institution of the Passover meal, you know, where God started it. It's very much family-oriented. You're to um, slaughter, butcher the lamb outside the house, but if you have a big household, you do it for your house. And then it says, well, if, there's, if your household is not big enough, then you can share it with another house. You split the thing up, but you take it in your house and you eat it with your family. It's a very family-oriented celebration. And it is to this day. Again, observant Jews, what do you do on Passover? You've got to be with your family. Uh, you know, grandma must light the candles and the father leads the ceremony in the house. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. All the Jewish families worshiping in their own abodes, their own houses, uh, all over the place and the light of Passover, the candles shine in many, many, many different places. But it's a family celebration. And I, I, this is an interesting point it's because Jesus is demonstrating that there's a whole new definition of family. You know, a lot of us are blessed with families. And you could say, you can see we had lots of children up here. We love families. And I'm blessed with a wonderful family myself. But, you know, we really have to realize that the church is the family. We're called brothers and sisters, you know, in Christ. And look with me back at a famous passage. It's in Mark. It's also repeated in, in Matthew. Mark 3. Very cr little uh, crucial time, a, a moment 
uh, where Jesus's earthly family, they had kind of had enough of, of Jesus. And they, see, look at verse 20, verse 20, Mark 3, 320. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. Beelzebul. I'm reading a bunch here. We're going to get down to verse 31. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the context. We're getting to much deeper things there that we're not really going to talk about, but very briefly, it's saying that if, if your decided opinion is that this whole teaching about Jesus is wrong and that he's crazy and what he's teaching is not helpful to you, you don't need him, well, that's an unforgivable sin. You will never be forgiven of that sin if you reject Jesus. It, you can't Because he's the means of forgiveness. So if you reject the means of forgiveness, there's no forgiveness, you see. Very logical, actually. Um, so in that context, it says in verse 31, and his mother and brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So remember back up in verse 21, they went out to seize him. They're going to take him out of circulation because they said he was out of his mind. They were, they were coming very close to committing that unforgivable sin. And by the way, these will all become believers later on. And so we can't say they did finally. It wasn't their final choice, but they were coming very close. He's out of his mind. They're out to seize him. And what does Jesus say? Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So it's significant that here at the Last Supper, the last Passover, he's gathering with the twelve. Because ultimately, and this is a decision many uh, people make every day in this world, 
you may have to reject your biological family uh, for God's family. And to be a, a, a brother or sister of Jesus is to be one who does the will of God, he said. So, so the church, the, the body of Christ is thicker than blood. It's more important than our earthly family. And it's a terrible thing, terrible tragedy when someone selects to stay with their biological family over Jesus. It's a tragedy. It's an eternal mistake. Go with Jesus. Be his brother. Be his sister. Eat the Passover with him and stay with him. Okay, I think that's interesting. It sets up where we are in, in our text today. Okay, so now we're in verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, the language here is important. I, I, I point this out all the time. I'm sorry if it seems repetitive to you, but let's slow down and listen to the word. When he says, truly, he's being very emphatic. Uh, you can think of a Baptist preacher pounding the pulpit at this point. Jesus didn't have a pulpit, but he's being emphatic. It's a huge emphasis. He literally breaks into uh, Hebrew language and says the word amen. Amen. This is, this is certain. Truly, I say to you, one of you, what's the next word? Will. Not might or could be. They will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, I take that to mean all 12 of them, perhaps even Judas, we don't know for sure, but they said, is it I? Or as I said, the, the Greek uh, means, it's, it's, it, isn't, it isn't me who will do this, is it, Lord? It, it's not I, is it? There's a, there's a, question, but I, I, I hope not. I, I, I don't know my heart thoroughly, but, and I could be, but I, I, I don't think so. He said to them, and I just, I'm picking on the actual language here of the text. He said to them, it could be one of the twelve. No, no, no. That's not what it says. It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. You see, in the small things about where is my dining room, Jesus displayed his sovereignty over all things. And now here, once again, he's displaying his sovereignty. He doesn't say this could happen. Maybe if if Judas makes another choice and another choice, then, then one of you will betray me. No, in the sovereign plan of God, this is set. There is no contingency. This will happen. And again, it brings us to this same slide. That's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1.11 says he is the one who, who works, and it's a present tense participle. He is the one who is working all things after the counsel of his own will, God took counsel with himself. 
and decided how things would be, and he's working it after his counsel. That's what sovereignty is. God, that's who God is. And you know what? When we say, you are holy, holy. You know, one thing we're really saying there is, you're different. You're massively unique. You're different than any other being. There's one God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Hallelujah. Praise Him. I'm telling you, it's bigger than we can imagine. That's what we mean. Yes, there's an aspect of moral holiness, to, but it really means to be radically different, holy other. That's who God is. He comes and there's nothing about this might happen. He knew precisely who would betray him. And as I said, I'm, I, I'm thankful that the disciples uh, show some humility here because, you know, what's in the capacity of your heart? What's in the capacity of my heart? You know what Jesus taught us to pray? Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That's our prayer. Oh, God, I need your help to not be led into temptation because I know I am weak and I need your strength. Let me be real with myself and not play this game of, oh, <laughs> I had no choice. I was overcome. Let's be real and, and be humble. This is the way to deal with our own sin. Have some self-doubt which opens us up to the power of God. They said, I'm not the one. Am I? I also want to point out here that uh, he, he says, verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the twelve. He knew exactly and the betrayal comes from within the, the tight family that I spoke of, the brothers and sisters. One of them was a betrayer, which is a, a cautionary tale for all of us. We, we live in a world that's so broken that those we should be able to trust might very well be the ones who will uh, betray us. This is what happened to Jesus. And honestly, if it happened to him, it's much more likely to happen to us because we probably deserve it you know, half the time, right? Um, in other words, he's perfect. He was perfect. He did not in any way deserve this sort of treatment from Judas, whereas you and I, I can speak for myself, right? <laughs> that I probably deserve that. But it comes from within. Also, I'll point out here in the text, look, look what it says. It says here, um, verse 21. Uh, again, back really back to the sovereignty point. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus hearkens back to the, the Bible. He loves the Scripture. 
Uh, we actually have some visitors. I don't want to embarrass them, but they were, were sitting in the back row there. They came. They were here like on time, sitting in the back row. You know what? They had their Bibles open, looking for Mark, looking for the passage. And then, you know, I looked at their Bibles. They're marked up. I said, there's somebody who loves the Scripture, right? It's according to the Word of God. Why did Jesus die? One of the reasons he says, according to the Scripture. He rose according. To, I, we have to have this happen. It's written in the Word of God. How important is the Word of God? Right? It is, it is life and health and being. It is the speech of the eternal God. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 13, 31. Mark. Heaven and earth will pass away. It's an absolute truth. This whole earth and earth, heaven itself is going to be burned up. Peter tells us that. And then there will be a new heaven and new earth. Wow. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Wow. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my, my, and Jesus is saying this. The Son of Man says, my words will not pass away. Who is Jesus? He's God. His words will not pass away. So he is, is uh, lovingly submitting to the words of God. You know, Isaiah 53 is a great example of what he's talking about, that the, the, this Lamb of God must be sacrificed. He, it was the will of God to crush him. He became the sacrifice for our sins. Goes as it is written of him. So that's the sovereignty of God. It, it is going to happen this way. But don't forget the responsibility of man at the same time. It, the sovereignty of God does not relieve us of responsibility. Well, God is sovereign, therefore I have no choice, and it doesn't matter what I do. Uh, no, look what happens here in the rest of the text. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. He's saying that Judas is responsible for his choice. He will be held accountable for what he has done. He has done it. God's sovereign will planned it, but there's no compulsion on Judas. Judas isn't feeling like, oh, I've got to do this because of the sovereignty of God. God has planned this out. I must do it. No, he's doing it of his own will, of his own choice. And he bears responsibility eternally for those choices. And this is true for you and I. The same exact thing. We bear responsibility for our choice. Look real quickly uh, at two passages in Acts, just because they're so wonderful uh, on this very, very issue. Acts 2, 22. Oh, I'll read a bit here, uh, Acts 2.22. This is the first sermon in post-Pentecost. First sermon by Peter. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion wasn't an accident. 
It was the definite plan of God in his knowing beforehand. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you did this even though it obviously is a part of the sovereign will of God. You are held accountable for those actions. And then 4.23, the same thing. Uh, it says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, right out there, there's a there's kelp growing out there. And I, I can see, I can see the cod swimming in the kelp. Can you see it with me, brother? Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, glance that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's a sea cucumber out there. It says crazy things like this long, you can squeeze it. And it now, that is weird. He made all of those things. This is our God, the creator of the, the massive and the minor, the macro and the micro. He made everything in them. Who through the mouth of your father, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord against Jesus Christ, against God himself and against his anointed one. So they're responsible for that choice. They were against the Lord, but it was the absolute sovereign will of God. So this is what I'm going to close with. Response. You could fill us in. But here's some responses that I think are important for us to think about. First of all, Trust his work. He knows what he's doing. This is true in our personal lives. Things do not happen randomly. I, you know, I, I tripped over that thing Friday night as an illustration of, and I stumble in the darkness. Uh, it's the sovereign will of, of God Things and, things and and in his sovereign will, bad, horrible things happen that don't make sense to us. But the worst thing you can do is say, "Oh, it's absurd. There is no God. Uh, this is unredeemable. This is this is irrational." No, you say, "This is rational. It is not absurd. God has a plan. He's a good God. I trust him through it. I don't know the end, but he's doing something." He's shaking it up for a reason. Believe me. It was important for them to have that last Passover. Believe me, it was important for Judas to betray Jesus. No, it's, it's my eternal welfare and the salvation of all who believe happened on the balance point of Judas betraying him. So things happen for a purpose and a reason. Secondly, I already led us to this. Hallelujah. Let's marvel. And I mean it as a verb. Marvel. He uses his sovereignty to suffer. 
Jesus is the all-powerful God and He used His power to suffer for us and to save us. Marvel at His salvation. Look how He uses His power. Now, this next point keys off of that. That you and I have given a little bit of power, a tiny little bit of energy to do something in this world. And we need to use our power, our sovereignty, <laughs> in God's work for God's glory. And, and that may mean, very well mean, doing the difficult thing, the hard thing, like suffering for somebody else's sin, uh, carrying the baggage, working it through, solving the problem, not living for myself, in fact, dying to myself. Jesus died to himself for us. And that was the sovereign will of God. That's how he used his freedom and sovereignty. It's a great call to follow in his footsteps, to be those people who go way above and beyond and to use our power for God's work. And then finally, uh, you, you need to respond in faith to this. This is all the grace of God received by faith the gift of God's grace. Jesus produced salvation. It's here and available. Accomplished by this sovereign God for us. He said, it's finished. I have accomplished the work that the Father sent me here to do. And you know, we're going to get up to it in a week or two, that he didn't even in his humanness, he said, let this cup pass from me. It was horrible what he had to do. But he did it. And so now it's up to us to receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father, please open our hearts and minds today. Help us to be able to think through this text that displays your power, your sovereignty, your gracious plan of redemption, and all the glorious symbolism of Jesus as the Lamb of God. He is our Passover. And when we, by faith, take Him, we apply His blood to our lives, you will, you will pass over us in our deserved wrath. You, you, you yourself in your power paid for that wrath and took it for us in a substitution. Lord, we thank You for that. We pray that we will receive and that we will... Follow the example of Jesus. Be ready to work and use our little limited moments and energy and time for your glory to follow closely uh, to what you have us to do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.